When it comes to television in the 1970s, there was no series creator or producer more prolific than Norman Lear. That decade, he was involved with 14 different shows that made it on air. During the 1975-76 season, six of his shows were in the top 30, with three of them in the top 10. Generally, he made sitcoms that had a tendency to be controversial, that dealt with race and other social issues. But in 1979, he made a series that generated so much anger, he had to pull it before it ever made it on air. My name is Dan Delgado, and today, we're taking a look at the brief history of the series, Mr. Dugan. Welcome to the industry. The beginning of Mr. Dugan starts with the end of a different Norman Lear TV series, Maud. In case you aren't familiar, Maud starred B. Arthur as Maud Finley, a very loud, very sarcastic, very opinionated, very liberal middle-aged woman. Maud was a sort of counterbalance to Lear's most famous creation of Archie Bunker on All in the Family. During the final season of Maud, Lear had an idea on how to end the series and potentially keep it going at the same time. Maud would get appointed to Congress to finish out the term of a congresswoman who had died. She would move away from her house in Connecticut and spend the seventh and potential final season in Washington. The seventh season would have a whole new supporting cast with Bill Macy, who played Maud's husband Walter, being the only other series regular to make the move. B. Arthur liked this idea, so either Maud would end with her going to Congress, there's your last episode, or if they wanted, they would spend one more outrageous season with Maud in Washington taking on her inherited staff and anyone else who dared to disagree with her. Lear took the last three episodes of the sixth season of Maud to set this up. He brought in actors Dennis Berkeley, Barbara Rhodes, and Nedra Valls to play Maud's congressional staffers in these final episodes, which mainly served to set up the seventh season in Washington. But sometime after the sixth season ended, B. Arthur decided that she had had enough of Maud and wanted to move on. There would be no seventh season. But CBS still liked the idea of this person in Congress butting heads with their staff, and Lear and his company decided to rework it. A few months later, a new series had been announced called Onward and Upward, starring John Amos. Never mind that Norman Lear had fired John Amos from the TV series Good Times a few years earlier. Onward and Upward would be about a former professional football player who gets appointed to Congress to finish out a term after a congressman suddenly dies, and the new congressman, played by John Amos, would end up butting heads with his new congressional staff. Playing those staffers for Onward and Upward were Dennis Berkeley, Barbara Rhodes, and Nedra Valls. If it sounds familiar, in fact, the script was supposedly the exact same one used for B. Arthur, just with the name changed. The pilot for Onward and Upward is shot and picked up by CBS as a mid-season replacement. They even have a nice time slot on Sunday nights between All in the Family, number 9 in the ratings that year, and Alice, number 13 in the ratings that year. John Amos suddenly exited the show, citing the show business' favorite reason for exiting a show, creative differences. Although series co-creator and producer Charlie Houck looked at it a little differently. He said creative differences, and as a matter of fact, Houck actually wrote a book called Creative Differences that talked a little bit about, uh, I think he said something like, uh, 
John Amos thought he was creative and the producers differed or something like that. That is Richard Irvin. Yeah, I write uh, books on uh, various aspects of TV history, uh, particularly those aspects that are not all that well known. Perhaps if I wrote about more popular shows, I would sell more books. The Chicago Tribune's Gary D. reported that Amos was dissatisfied with the program's storylines and deeply disturbed by the emphasis on hard jokes instead of more realistic humor. A number of actors were considered to replace John Amos, but it's not easy. Producers start to consider white and Hispanic actors for the part. Eventually, though, on February 14th, actor Cleavon Little ends up getting the job. Somewhere along the way, the title Onward and Upward was changed to Mr. Dooley. I don't know what caused this change, but it did provide for an unintentional great moment on the game show Match Game 79. Cast member Barbara Rose was one of the stars she needed to match that week, and on Monday, she was announced by Johnny Olsen like this. From Onward and Upward, Barbara Rose. But by Wednesday, it had changed to this. From Mr. Dooley, Barbara Rose. And you can't go on match game and start changing things and expect it to go unnoticed. Certainly not with Gene Rayburn running things. Now, what has Johnny been saying about your show? What is your new show called? Well, Onward and Upward. Johnny's been saying Onward and Upward, but uh, we changed it. And they, but we and didn't no tell t- Johnny. Well. So it's called uh, Mr. Dooley. Mr. Dooley. Yeah. Mr. Dooley, D-O-O-L-E-Y? Well, the producer wanted to call it Gone with the Wind, but he said that was taken already. Oh, yeah. Now, you don't play Mr. Dooley. No. No, sure that would does. hardly be possible. You make a note of that. Change it to Mr. Dooley. Thank you, Yes. Dooley. I'm sorry. Yes. It's totally my fault. Yeah, I hope that's going to be on our network. It certainly is. It's right here on CBS, Sunday night, 8.30, right after All in the Family. Wonderful. And while all that Mr. Dooley talk is great, and any time I have a reason to use clips from Match Game warms my heart, it doesn't really last very long as a title. Because, as it turns out, Mr. Dooley is the copyrighted name of a character that appeared in newspapers around the turn of the century. So, in an effort to save time, Mr. Dooley became Mr. Dugan. The show started production to meet its March 11th premiere date, and after getting three episodes in the can, held a special screening of Mr. Dugan for members of the Congressional Black Caucus. This couldn't have gone any worse. Every member of the caucus, all of them, hated Mr. Dugan. Maryland Representative Perrin Mitchell declared, It stinks! and walked out of the screening. Representative William Gray III took personal offense at the show. Gray himself was a former football player turned congressman and feared that people might think Mr. Dugan was based on him. After the screening, he said, The impact would be disastrous, showing a congressman who was a silly, incompetent man ruled by his staff. Norman Lee responded to this criticism from the caucus by saying the show could be changed over time. But nothing was going to smooth this over. Caucus chairwoman Cardis Collins said, I feel that as black representatives, we could not afford to come off looking like buffoons all over the United States. To change 10 weeks later would be way too late. And that sealed the fate of Mr. Dugan. 
just days before it was to debut on March 11, 1979. Despite running ads for it on television and having completed already three episodes with a fourth on the way and with a price tag of around a million dollars already spent, Norman Lear himself pulled the plug on Mr. Dugan. It was literally only a few days before it was to debut and CBS still wanted the show, but Norman Lear refused to give it to them. He even went so far as to hide the tapes to make sure that Mr. Dugan didn't wind up on air. He literally hid the uh, videotapes so they couldn't be aired. Because it really was exceptional. You know, usually producers want their series to get on the networks, and Mr. Lear was the opposite with not only Mr. Dugan, but another series a couple years earlier, uh, I think it was a year at the top, that he actually pulled from the air to retool. And you would think for a TV producer that hiding a TV series that you are obligated to give to a network that you made a deal to have it on the air would be a bad thing, right? Well, remember at the time, and this was like in the 70s, he was like the number one producer, particularly on CBS. And so uh, uh, given all the hits he had with Maude and All in the Family, uh, that I don't think CBS... uh, would protest as much as they might have in the case of another producer. Alan Horn, the president of Lear's company, Tat Communications, stated to the press that it wasn't the caucus alone that led to this decision, but that the screening had confirmed something about the show that they had already suspected themselves. Horn told the press, We don't respond to pressure, but we agreed with the viewers that the content and the character just didn't play. Series producer Charlie Houck cited Cleavon Little's performance as one of the issues. I actually volunteered that bit in the book, I think, about Cleavon Little not really being comfortable acting in a three-camera comedy. And that he thought maybe that was one of the reasons that uh, it didn't go over well with the preview audiences because he had trouble remembering his lines, which kind of surprised me because Cleavon Little had been on Broadway. Now, for his part... Cleavon Little was not happy. And let's talk about Cleavon Little for a minute. He was born in 1939 in Oklahoma and died way too young from colon cancer at the age of 53. He was raised in California, graduated high school in 1957. He earned a bachelor's degree in dramatic arts at San Diego State University. After that, he received a full scholarship to graduate school at Juilliard. After finishing at Juilliard, he also trained at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. He starts out off-Broadway for a few years in the 1960s, before making it on-Broadway in 1968 to get the supporting role in Jimmy Shine, a play starring Dustin Hoffman. By 1970, he's in the musical Pearly, where he gets rave reviews as the lead character, Pearly Victorious Judson. And then, just a few months later... Now there are three gentlemen out there waiting to see which one of them walks up these stairs. The nominees for Best Actors in a Musical are Len Carreyou in Applause, Cleveland Little in Pearly, and Robert Reedy in Cry for Us All. Cleveland Little in Pearly! Cleveland Little wins the Tony for Best Performance by a Lead Actor in a Musical. He goes from Broadway to Hollywood, getting a few supporting roles in movies like Cotton Comes to Harlem and Vanishing Point. But in 1972, Cleavon Little finds himself starring on a sitcom on ABC. 
playing a doctor on a series called Temperatures Rising. The tidy, regulated hospital routine of temperatures rising. Whoops. Excuse me, ma'am. Sir. Oh, sir. I think I love you. Who is that? Brand new. I'm sure I love you. Oh, I'm already spoken for. <laughs> James Whitmore, Cleavon Little. Temperatures Rising. The first season of Temperatures Rising does okay in the ratings. It's up against Maud on CBS, which it cannot beat. But it does manage to beat out the aging series over on NBC, Bonanza. Finishing at number 29 in the ratings, it should get a second season. And that's no small feat when you take into consideration that some ABC affiliates in the South and Midwest refused to air the series or showed it at a later time because one of the stars of the show happened to be black. Most shows that finished in the top 30 at the time would get renewed. And while Temperatures Rising did get a second season, it was massively reworked. They brought in Paul Lynn as a new lead, reducing Cleavon Little's screen time and replacing the entire supporting cast. They even gave the show a clever new title to let everyone know about these changes. It was now officially called The New Temperatures Rising Show. But as you can already guess, this did not improve things. In fact, it made them worse. And while Temperatures Rising would not end up getting a third season it would get Cleavon Little noticed for his next big role. Excuse me while I whip this out. <laughs> Blazing Saddles. If Pearlie made the theater world notice Cleavon Little and Temperatures Rising made some television audiences aware of him, after Blazing Saddles, everyone should have known who Cleavon Little was. We now know Blazing Saddles is a comedy classic, but in 1974, it was a phenomenon. It grossed a ridiculous $119 million that year, making it the top movie at the box office. In 2018, that would be the equivalent of $586 million. So yes, Blazing Saddles outgrossed everything in 1974. The Towering Inferno, The Godfather Part II, Chinatown, Young Frankenstein, and everything else that year. Cleavon Little should have hit the big time, but three years passed before he got another movie, a supporting role in the Richard Pryor racing comedy Greased Lightning. And instead, he ended up spending his time doing guest starring stints on TV shows like The Rockford Files and The Rookies. As to why that happened, he didn't really know. Here he is in the mid-1980s talking about it. Film, I've done one major role. Um, that was in Blazing Saddles. After that, for three years, I didn't get offered. Why not? This, I don't know. This, we can conjecture on a lot of things. I have no idea. I mean, I have some ideas, and, and it's the cliche thing in terms of being black. I don't like to rely on that as being a reason for my not working. Because once I do that, I should give it up. I should get out of it. It's too defeatist of an attitude. So when Mr. Dugan was pulled in 1979, Cleavon Little had some choice words. He was quoted in Jet Magazine as saying, here was a chance to bring some serious issues to the screen using the vehicle of comedy. Dugan could have become the strongest black comedy character on television. Little would go on to say how he had plans to bring in black actors, writers, and eventually wanted to do some producing himself on the show. 
that he would not have taken the part if he felt it was going to have a negative impact, that script changes were being made, but that they never had a chance. 1979, in total, probably wasn't a great year for Cleavon Little. Not only did Mr. Dugan not make it on the air, but another pilot he was in that same year, based on the movie Uptown Saturday Night, did not get picked up. And if that wasn't enough, he also appeared that year in an episode of Super Train. A couple of weeks after Mr. Dugan was pulled from the CBS lineup, an article appeared in the Washington Post, written by the series co-creator and producer Charlie Houck, detailing everything that happened from his point of view. Now, everything I'm about to tell you comes from that article. It's called The Recall of TV's Mr. Dugan, and it ran on April 1st, 1979. Houck explains that when TAT Communications was considering a white or Hispanic actor for the role of Mr. Dugan, he received a phone call from Derek Humphreys the PR man for the Congressional Black Caucus, who offered his help in finding the right man for the role. Houck told Humphreys he wasn't sure the character was still going to be black. Houck then received a call from Bill Lane, an official of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. You know, the NAACP. Lane had heard about the possibility of Mr. Dugan going from black to white, and he wasn't happy about it. He accused Charlie Houck of toying with black actors and demanded a black actor be cast. Lane also told this to Daily Variety. Additionally, Lane mentioned that not only would the NAACP not be happy if a black actor wasn't used, but so would the Congressional Black Caucus. This article ran in Daily Variety on February 14th, the very same day Cleavon Little was cast in the role. On February 28th, just two weeks after that first Daily Variety article appeared, a new article showed up, this one with the cheerful headline of Black Caucus Vows to Crush CBS's Mr. Dugan. Bill Lane of the NAACP and Derek Humphreys, the PR man for the Congressional Black Caucus, were ripping Mr. Dugan to shreds. They called the show trash and that it was a systematic effort to erode the power of black officials around the country. And if this show should dare to hit the airwaves, the caucus would introduce legislature for government control of television networks. Though I'm not really sure that that would have passed. And if that wasn't enough, the NAACP would join the caucus in, quote, apt national censure of Mr. Dugan. Keep in mind that at this point, no one from the Congressional Black Caucus or the NAACP had even seen Mr. Dugan. Houck says that it was at this point having not seen the show, but publicly condemning it anyway, which may not exactly seem fair, was what led to the ill-fated Mr. Dugan screening in Washington, D.C. The caucus invited Norman Lear and Alan Horn to come and screen the show. Now, Charlie Houck thought this was a terrible idea, thinking that since the caucus had already publicly declared it as trash, they weren't likely to change their minds, and they didn't. The three episodes of Mr. Dugan that were completed are not available anywhere. No surprise. But courtesy of Richard Irvin's book, Forgotten Laughs, what we do have is the plot synopsis to a couple of them, though. The first episode was called New Man in Town. It introduces Mr. Dugan, Mr. Matthew Dugan, a former Heisman Trophy winner who heads a successful construction company who gets elected to Congress. 
since he's finishing out the term of a deceased congressman, he's stuck with the staff that's already in place. His staff is led by Sam, who has a great description of being a slick-talking, fast-eating chief of staff. There's also his high-pressure assistant, Maggie, and Aretha, his biracial press secretary. This episode plays a bit like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, in which Mr. Dugan goes in idealistic and after dealing with his difficult new staff, begins to question his future as a congressman. The second episode was called Matt and Sam Go Hunting, and that's all we have. If I had to make an educated guess on this one, I would say that in this episode, Matt and Sam probably go hunting at some point. The third episode was called Matt's Team Reunion. Here, Matt has to attend a reunion for his football team, but he's concerned how he might look. A former cheerleader from the team has been calling, but Matt isn't interested because, well, she's a former cheerleader. But he then finds out that she has a PhD in psychology. Now he's happy to go with her to the reunion. A news team is covering his appearance there, and on camera, standing with Matt, Mona, the PhD former cheerleader, tells them that she works in the field of male psychology, and she's a sex therapist. Hilarity ensues. Mona ends up having to make a statement to the press, letting the world know that Matt was actually her date and not her patient. And we have one more episode. Now, the previous ones were all written produced, filmed, and are hiding somewhere in Norman Lear's vault. This last one was written, but never actually produced. It was called Sam's Girlfriend, and was about an old girlfriend of Sam, the chief of staff, returning and freaking him out so much he can't stop eating. And that is the end of Mr. Dugan. But wait, there's one more thing. In August of 1979, five months after the disaster of Mr. Dugan, a new series appeared on CBS. Hanging In was a sitcom about a former football player who becomes president of a university. He ends up butting heads with his inherited staff played by Dennis Berkeley, Barbara Rhodes, and Nedra Valse. Sounds familiar, right? A couple of the scripts from Mr. Dugan were renamed and recycled. The Mr. Dugan episode of Sam's Girlfriend was now called Old Girlfriend, for example. And to top it off, playing the lead, now named Lou Harper, because quite honestly, nobody wants to be reminded of that Dugan guy, was none other than Bill Macy. And Bill Macy is best remembered as Walter Finley, B. Arthur's husband on Maud. And since there are no clips of Hanging In on YouTube or anywhere else that I could find, I decided I would ask Richard Irvin what he remembered about the series. Oh, I think I might have. I think it aired during the summer in the late 70s, if I recall. But I can't recall anything memorable about that. Hanging In was canceled after four episodes. Thank you for listening to The Industry. This episode was written, edited, and hosted by me, Dan Delgado. Special thanks to my guest, Richard Irvin, and my proof listener, Jessica Pack. Music in today's show was by Kevin McLeod, Audionautics, and Wayne Jones. This show was released on September 30th, 2018 for International Podcast Day. 
So rather than pester you about iTunes reviews, I would really love it if you simply told someone about a podcast you enjoy. It could be any show. It doesn't have to be this one, but it probably should. If you've missed an episode or you'd like to contact the show, you can visit us online at theindustrypodcast.com. We'll be back again soon with another story of the things that went on in the industry. Good night.